Thank you, Judy, for that wonderful worship dance with uh, How Great Thou Art, which is going to be a great thank you, Steve, as well. I'm balancing a football, which you hear about in a second. Again. Again, yeah. Got to work football in there, right? Got to work football in. Got to work here. Thank you. So we're going to go to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and How Great Thou Art will lead us right into it. But children are dismissed to junior church, I think. They haven't left yet, so go ahead and head out to junior church. And I'll come back to this football here in a moment. I do have to, it's my favorite sport. I do have to work it in some way or another. You know, we began a sermon series last week on foundations. What, you know, and my point is that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are foundational to our faith. They're foundational. They, they are incredibly important. They're significant to our faith. And, um, you know, since it's going to flow better coming from How Great Thou Art, I want to read this from the book Crazy Love from Francis Chan. And sometimes I do things just to throw off those that follow along on the sermon manuscript. So if you're following along, this actually is in the very end of the sermon manuscript. Uh, But don't worry, I'll have a different closing to the sermon. So in Crazy Love, Francis Chan writes this. Why would God create more than 350 trillion galaxies? And that is a conservative estimate that generations of people never saw or even knew existed. Think about that. All those galaxies that for six to 10,000 years, depending how old uh, things are, until the Hubble ta- Space Telescope got the pictures, people never saw or even knew existed. There's probably, I can guarantee it, I think, there are a lot of other galaxies we still can't see. Why would God create all of those? Do you think it may be God did that to make us say, wow, God is unfathomably big? Or perhaps God wanted us to look at pictures, and I'm sure you've all seen them, of these galaxies through the Hubble Space Telescope or other things. And, 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 and maybe God wanted us to say, who do I think I am? God is amazing. R.C. Sproul writes, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. I want to repeat that. Men are never duly touched or impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. God is amazing. Do you know that a caterpillar has 228 separate and distinct muscles in his head? It's quite a few for a bug. How do they even fit 228 muscles in a caterpillar's head? Maybe that should make us think twice next time we kill one. Although generally we like caterpillars, don't we? The average elm tree has approximately 6 million leaves on it. And your own heart generates enough pressure as it pumps blood that it can, um, that it can squirt that blood up to 30 feet. Now, I have not tried that, and we don't recommend that either. Have you ever thought about how diverse and creative God is? God did not have to make hundreds of different kinds of bananas, but he did. God did not have to put 3,000 different species of trees within one square mile in the Amazon jungle, but he did. God didn't have to create so many kinds of laughter. Think about all the different kinds of laughter of our friends. You know, some are wheezes, snorts, silent, loud, obnoxious. 
How about the way plants defy gravity? Plants defy gravity by drawing water upward from the ground into their stems and veins. Or did you know, this is the best one, because two things I hate, spiders and snakes. Don't even like garter snakes. We had a um, youth room in the basement when I served a church in Cincinnati, and we found multiple garter snakes in there, but thankfully Megan took care of them. And... uh, (laughs) We did find one bat come through. Actually, a bat flew around during a church service once at that church. How about the way spiders, get this. Spiders produce three kinds of silk as they spin their webs. When they build their webs, they create 60 feet of silk in one hour. 60 feet of silk in one hour, simultaneously producing special oil on their feet that prevents them from sticking to their own webs. I never thought about that. How do spiders not stick to their own webs? Well, as they are producing this silk, they're also producing a special oil on their feet to keep them from sticking to their own webs. Most of us hate spiders, but 60 feet an hour deserves some respect. There's a type of plant in Africa or somewhere, I heard John Piper share this, that eats every bug that comes into it. They just clamp down and eat it. Except one type of spider that needs to go in, I think it's a spider, one type of spider or another type of bug, that needs to go into this plant in order to take care of some nutrient it needs. So it lets it in, lets it out. How'd that happen? It happened through God's creative and intentional and specific design. Coral plants are so sensitive that they can die if the water temperature varies by even one or two degrees. We serve an amazing God who created everything with precision and detail. And so we can sing out how great thou art. Last week, we started the sermon series on foundations. And today I want to get into the significance of the creation account. And in, in, in a few weeks, we'll get into more detail about Adam and Eve as a specific creation and the first Adam, second Adam and other things. You know, I read the following. There are two very practical and human answers to the creation of man and woman. Two practical and human answers to the creation of man and woman. One is the man's view. The other is the woman's view. The woman's view of creation is this. God made the man and looked at him and said, I can do better than that. And he created woman. Now the man's view. The man's view is God made the beasts and man, and then God rested, and then he created woman, and neither beast nor man nor God has rested since. (laughs) Two different versions of the creation, two different ideas of the creation, and man and woman, and obviously, it just jokes. So I'm teaching a class at Malone University. It's just one class as an adjunct professor. They needed uh, multiple adjuncts at this time, and they asked, and so it's one class called Bible 100. And as part of the class, the students have to read five chapters a week and turn in a journal of three-quarter page to one page uh, to me, summarizing. And they can also apply if they want. I'm just looking mainly. They took it seriously and are reading the material. And they have to turn it in saying they've, they've read. Interestingly enough, since last week was the first week of class, 
uh, the, the first week's work. In the second week, we gave them an extra week, so it's not due till next week. But the girls, I have 38 students in my class, so larger class. The girls, the women, the young ladies, they turned in, several of them turned in their work early to me. The guys, none of the guys have turned in a thing yet. In fact, I said that on Friday, and two of the guys in the front row gave each other a fist bump. Anyways, I've been really impressed with, with the work they're doing, with their analysis of the chapters and what they're turning in, their applications to their life. is really, really, really impressed. But one of them was reading Genesis chapters 1 through 5, and they wrote about it, and I found it somewhat humorous but accurate. As she said, we see here that God created man, and then when God noticed that she was needed, he created woman. And I thought that was interesting. That's an interesting way of putting it. When God saw that she was needed, he created woman. Because man and woman both reflect the glory of God, both reflect the image of God. You know, there's a story of Vince Lombardi. Maybe some of you have heard of him. A great football coach of uh, the Green Bay Packers, right? And from what I'm told, and uh, Gary Weary or Rich or some of you may be able to even share more detail about this, there was a time in front of the players where he grabbed a football and he went back to the basics. And he said, this is a football. Kind of like kindergarten, childish things, right, to talk about with, with, with pro athletes. But he went back to the basics. And Gary gave me permission to throw it to him from now. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. Because it would be my one time I throw bad. Anyway, well, I throw bad all the time. But usually I can make that pass. Anyways, this is a football. He went back to the basics. Well, I want to make the case that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are foundational to our faith. They're foundational. They're, they're incredibly significant to our faith. And we can't just take them apart. We can't just change them. We can't just edit them as we choose. We just can't do that because it affects the New Testament. It affects the rest of the Old Testament. They're foundational to our faith. What do we learn about in Genesis chapters 1 through 11? I've shared some of these last week. I shared some in my newsletter. I'll continue to share them. We learn about the creation of man and woman, right? We learn about all creation. But we learn about the origin of marriage, right? Why do we have marriage? Go to Genesis chapter 2. Why do we have male and female? Go to Genesis chapter 2. How does, what's wrong with the world? One of the main things I've been really eager to impress this on my class at Malone is you know, a biblical worldview, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We see creation and fall in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And we also see the first prophecy of redemption. One thing that everyone thinks about, whether they admit it or not, is what is wrong with the world and how can it be fixed? We see that in Genesis 3. What's wrong with the world? Sin entered the world. When sin entered the world, death entered the world. And we're dealing with the consequence of that every single day. We always have ever since. But we also see the first prophecy of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15. We see the, the beginning of close in Genesis chapter 3, don't we? As we go through Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we see Abraham introduced at the end of Genesis 11. We see, uh, we see uh, certainly the flood, but we also see how humanity spread out. We see so many critical things that are foundational to our faith. Today I want to talk about, more in summary form, how in Genesis chapter 1 we see how God created everything in six days. We see a broad view of creation. A broad view. In Genesis chapter 2, we see more detail. We'll get into that later. 
So today I want to impress the significance of the creation account from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. Now, I've preached on this passage a couple of times, so I'm not going to read that whole chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 2 and verse 31, and then I want to focus more on how significant that is by referencing other scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament about God as creator. So I want to read verses 1 through 2 of Genesis 1 and verse 31. I hope you're there in your Bibles or on your smartphones with me right now. Maybe you haven't memorized. Um, Hopefully you can find it okay. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what we focused on last week. God is creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. We're going to talk about the significance, but first let me overview. Let me give an overview, a summary here. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 31, we see the the, the six-day creation. Now, how important are these six days to the rest of the Bible? In a moment, we'll, we'll show some other, some other verses about that. But, but first, again, an overview. God created the earth. Now, the first two verses are extreme overview. I said last week it's called a merism, a merism. It means when, when it says God created the heavens and the earth, it's a merism. It means God created everything, everything. It includes everything. God created everything. Starting in verse 3, God gives order to this matter. God arranges his creation. And then the rest of this chapter, of chapter 1, deals with the details of the earth and its surroundings. God chose to create in six days. On day 1, God creates light. This light may not be the sun. Most have believed the light is light emanating from God, light, light emanating from God. Though there is an idea that days one through three, and this is a very conservative, uh, Dr. Adelnick's referenced it. He teaches at Moody Bible Institute. He certainly believes in a young earth, six solar day creation. So this is a very conservative evangelical idea that the first three days are forming and the last three days are filling, of giving purpose to it, okay? But day one, God creates light, this light, so, but, but the sun is not till day four, necessarily. On day two, God creates the atmosphere. On day three, God creates land and vegetation. There's an idea, as I said, uh, but it's in my notes here, so I'll say it again for emphasis, that days one through three are forming, days four through six are filling. On day four, God creates the moon and the stars. Notice that the Bible does not use the noun Sun or moon? Why would that be? If you study the ancient religions of the Middle East, you can see that those though that they worship the sun and the moon. They had moon gods and sun gods and things like that. So Moses was careful not to use those terms. In fact, if you really study this text, you can compare it with the other religions of the ancient Middle East. And you can see that Moses, being inspired by God, is actually directly saying, no, those gods didn't do anything. God created and he reigns supreme. Those gods are idols, they're false, they're fake, so on. Moses is correcting those religions. He's rebuking, reproving those religions. Remember, this is written to the Jewish people. This is written to the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt before they entered the promised land. They had been in Egypt. 
They had seen all the different pagan belief systems of Egypt. They also were familiar with the other religions of the Middle East, Baal worship and other things. And so God inspiring Moses right here is correcting those beliefs. On day five, God creates the creatures of the sea and the air. On day six, God creates the land animals and humans. Humans are the only creation specified. And humans are created in God's image. Notice, and this is critically important, it takes male and female to reflect the image of God. In, in Genesis 1, we just see that he created male and female. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, God gives more detail into uh, how he went about things, God creating woman. And sometimes we do emphasize a different role, R-O-L-E, not R-U-L-E, role, R-O-L-E. But that doesn't mean difference in value. Male and female are clearly different. We have different gifts. We have different nature. We have different, you know, um, things that we're called to do. That does not mean difference in value. It takes male and female to reflect the image of God. Now, how did God do this? Why can't we allow mystery in our lives? Why do we have to have all of the answers? Why do we limit God? I've always been enamored. I've always been trying to figure out certain things. Um, One of which is how we reconcile election, predestination, and free will. I like how Charles Haddon Spurgeon was asked about that. And he said, I don't. He said, he was asked, how do you reconcile free will with God's electing providence, predestination? And Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I don't. I don't reconcile friends. It's good. You know, he was a Quaker. Anyways, because the Quakers are called friends. So I was was talking with a theologian who teaches at another college about some of these things last summer. And he pointed out to me mystery. He pointed out prior to the Reformation, uh, prior to the Reformation, St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and many of the theologians of the day, many of the religious influencers, they would allow mystery more. And we don't allow mystery. We want to figure everything out. Why do we limit God? Were any of you there at creation? If so, talk to me after the service. I want to, I want to hear how this was. Listen, if we don't believe that God created in six solar days because we don't think it could be done, that is problematic. Actually, I would even say that's idolatry because we are putting something else in front of God. Someday, I take the belief The rapture is going to happen, and in less than a blink of an eye, everyone who is in Christ, who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior, are going to be raptured, reunited with their resurrected body in less than a blink of an eye, which supposedly is less than a second. I don't know how they figured that out, but supposedly less than a second. We serve an amazing God. I read the following. How did God create daisies? This person writes, Uh, He says, how did God create daisies? He says, I say like a child, you you, you throw a child up in the air or bounce him off your knee. And when you sit him on the floor, the first thing the kid says is do it again. Right. Do it again. 
Throw him in the air. Catch him. Bounce him off uh, on your knee. He's going to say, do it again. Do it again. Do it again 50 times. The 50th time the kid is still yelling hysterically, do it again. Do it again. The excitement of a little child. That's how God created daisies. Some of us don't like daisies. But for the sake of illustration, that's how God created daisies. God created one daisy, I'm sure of this, in the childlike heart of God. God clapped and said, do it again. He created daisy two, something within God said, do it again. He created daisy number three and four and five. Fifty billion trillion daisies later, the great God of the universe is still creating with childlike excitement and joy and yelling, do it again. Do it again. God is amazing. He is the amazing creator. I read an article about a month ago. It was written by the former editor of Christianity Today. You might know of Christianity Today. It was started by Billy Graham. And they started Christianity Today in the 1950s because the major publication called the Christian Century was going liberal. I'll just use that word. They were compromising the faith. So Billy Graham and his associates started Christianity Today. And the former editor... Uh, wrote an article or was in an interview, and I read a review of it, where he said one thing he noticed is Christians like to be accepted and look good by the non-Christian world. And so he had observed that many times we Christian leaders, Christian thought leaders, Christian writers will say the things they say, write the things they write, change their beliefs in certain ways. Because they want to look good to the secular world, to the non-Christian world. There's an article in First Things, which I could refer any of you to. And it's a very lengthy article. First Things is a more academic journal website. And it was about the split in evangelicalism. And he broke down, he or she, I think it was a he, the different um, stages of Christianity in America. So pre-1994, it was good to be a Christian. If you said you, were a, you went to church and you were a Christian, that looked good to most of America. Between 1994 and 2014, it was neutral. If you, it didn't make a difference whether you went to church or not, whether you were considered yourself a Christian or not. Between 2014 and present, it was, it's, it's negative to most of the world to be a Christian. It's changed. James 4.4 4 says friendship with the world is enmity, enemies with God. Uh, the Apostle Paul called us a peculiar people. We have to interpret the Bible literarily. That means correctly. There certainly are different poetic things and metaphors and allegory in the Bible. But as I've read uh, multiple sources now, including another source last week, we don't really see poetry in the creation in Genesis 1 and 2. As I said last week, the only time we really see poetry other than just narrative is the very end when, uh, when, when God places Eve in front of Adam. And Adam expresses poetic words. So we have to be able to stand on the Bible, on the word of God, whether we are accepted or not. There are some things that in the Christian world, in the church, where we are not called to be irrelevant. It's okay to have electric lighting. It's okay to have restrooms in the church. I'm grateful for them. It's okay to modernize our dress code and and things like that. Styles change. We don't dress like the Apostle Paul anymore. But there are certain things that are scriptural, that are biblical, that are foundational to our faith. and And we cannot budge on them. We cannot change on them. They are foundational to our faith.
I want to make some quick applications here and, and, and then summarize significance. God created, and this implies God is in charge. If God is a creator and God is in charge, we don't need to be afraid. We must trust God. Why shouldn't we trust God? If God is powerful enough to create everything we see, then he is trustworthy. Now, let me change that around. If God did not create or did not create everything, then we have no reason to trust him. However, if we believe Genesis chapters 1 and 2, then we have every reason to trust God. If God is not limited by time, then we don't need to worry about the future. God knows the future. God's already in the future. I know that's unfathomable, but I believe Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 show that God created time, space, and matter. In the beginning, God created time. God created space. God created matter. God is omnipresent. He's not only present everywhere in creation. He's present in the past, in the future, in the present, in every time zone. We don't need to fear because God is the creator. Something might catch you and I by surprise, but it will not catch God by surprise. We can trust him. And more than that, he's given us insight into the end in Revelation chapters 20 through 22. Scripture affirms God as creator in a six-day creation. I want to share Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Exodus 20, 11. It says, for in six days, this is when God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Isn't it interesting that right there in the Ten Commandments, in Genesis chapter 20, God refers back to creation. And we're going to talk more about that in a couple weeks. So let me just share that as another correlation, another corollary, a cross-reference. Nehemiah 9.6, you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down before you. God is creator and sustainer. Let me go back to Exodus 20, verse 11. I I know this is going to be repeated in a few sermons. But if we substitute, if we change the meaning of the word day there, it changes everything. It is true the Hebrew word for day, which is yom, Y-O-M, the Hebrew word for day, yom, can mean a solar day. And generally it does mean a solar day when it's connected with other certain words around it, which is, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, is connected with other certain words around it. Therefore, it usually should be translated as a 24-hour solar day. Now, it doesn't bother me if it's 24 hours and 10 minutes, okay, but a solar day. And, but if we change it right there, because the Hebrew word for day, yom, can mean other things, okay? So say that we change it. That would mean for six million, for six million days, because it says for in six days. So say that a day is a million years. Then you're saying for six million days, the Lord God made heaven and earth, and then God rested for a million days. That means none of us get to rest ever because we have to work for six million Days and then we get a day of rest, which is a million years. So it seems like by seeing Exodus 20 verse 11 and correlating that with the creation account, that's leading us that they're thinking about a solar day right there. And that's all I'll say about that for now. Let's look at a few other scriptures. Colossians 1.16. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's talking about Jesus as creator. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Uh, Mark 10, 6. 
But from the beginning, this is Jesus speaking. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. So right there, Jesus is referring back to the creation account of male and female. Second Peter 3, 5 through 7. This is really, really interesting. Because in 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7, this is what he says. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. They, people opposing, people compromising the beliefs of, of Christianity. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter is saying they compromised the belief about the flood. They don't believe this stuff anymore. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. To change the creation account of Genesis is to change the foundation of our faith. Genesis is foundational to our faith. I began referencing Vince Lombardi. This is a football. Foundations for our faith. One of the foundations for our faith is in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. Well, 1 and 2, the creation of male and female. God created Adam. God had all of the animals go before him. There was no suitable helpmate, companion. It basically means companion. So he created Eve. And God gave a purpose for male and female. A few weeks ago... Um, our neighboring nation of Canada passed a law that if somebody is struggling dealing with transgender issues, it's illegal to counsel them for a pastor, for a church, for a Christian counselor to counsel them. Um, uh, maybe not for heterosexuality, but that, 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 that is wrong. And the way that law is worded, it even means that if a pastor is preaching or teaching or a Christian leader is teaching or preaching, they could go to jail for teaching or preaching God's plan as male and female in marriage between one man and one woman. Because of that, one Christian leader recommended, thought, spoke out saying churches should preach on this issue this current Sunday today. And I just found about that last week. And so I didn't really want to change the sermon, but I do want to add that here, that we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in other countries around the world dealing with persecution. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Canada. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for our church across the United States of America because that could happen here. I don't think it will happen anytime soon, but there is a complete um, attack on, on, on Christian faith right now. But it's not really just an attack on Christian faith. It's an attack on humanity and existence as God created us. There was a, a, a heresy in the early church called Gnosticism. Gnostics. It starts with a G. It's G-N-O-S-T-I-C. It was a heresy. It was a Greco-Roman heresy. It, it impacted Judaism. It impacted others. But they would teach that the body is bad and, and, and only the immaterial world matters and, and things like that. We're doing the same thing in our culture right now. We, could, we cannot divorce the human body from our gender, being male or female. It goes down to the cellular level. 
Studies repeatedly show this. And when we start to compromise um, this idea of male and femaleness, for one, the science doesn't support that, as I've read it at least. And I'm not a scientist, but I've read many articles on that. I've heard Christian scientists speak on this. I've read Christian science articles. Um, We go back to Genesis 1 and 2 in the foundation of our faith. God created male and female. It takes male and female to reflect the glory of God. It takes male and female to to, um, follow God's purpose in creation. We can't compromise this. We can't change this. Now, I'm not saying that somebody doesn't have gender dysphoria. That really does happen. I believe it. It's a psychological issue. Anytime there's a conflict between the mind and the body, it's a psychological issue. And sometimes a spiritual issue, a spiritual issue, a psychological issue, it it can certainly be both. And and they need Christian help and psychological help and counsel. But what we're not doing right is is affirming something like that. That's not right. So we need to be in prayer about this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 says, uh, uh, Paul exhorts Timothy with his final words to the young Timothy, the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove and rebuke and train with great patience and instruction. And then he says, for the time will come in which people will no longer put up with sound teaching." Instead, they will gather teachers around them that give them what their itching ears want to hear. And then he says, but you, Timothy, be sober. That doesn't mean don't drink alcohol. It means, he means keep your head in all situations. Do the work of an evangelist. And something we have to ask ourselves, are we wanting teachers and preachers and teaching that just gives us what our itching ears want to hear or that makes us feel good? There are a lot of preachers and writers and teachers out there compromising the faith. And, and sometimes even they're maybe not compromising the faith, but they're only giving dessert. I love donuts. I ate one this morning. But we are not to only eat dessert. <laughs> we need a balanced diet. And we need a balanced diet from the word of God too. And we cannot compromise the faith. The time will come, has come, where people want to compromise the faith. Don't go there. Genesis chapters one and two, Genesis chapters one through 11 are foundational to our faith. And we need to be in prayer for um, countries and areas where they are forcing, even by law, people to compromise the faith, making very difficult decisions. And I think the best thing we can do here is stand on the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I pray that you would help us as we do stand on your word in the testimony of Jesus Christ. Lord God, these chapters I see are your word, inspired by you, inspired by you, delivered from uh, you to Moses, Moses to the people. Guide us and help us, supporting and standing on the word of God. Oh, Lord God, it's not just necessary standing on the word of God as a burden. It's not a burden. It's grace, your grace, giving us your word. So we know about creation. We know about the origins of marriage, the origins of male and female, the origin of how sin entered the world, but also the first prophecy of the Messiah, that you will provide redemption. Lord God, encourage us, bless, and guide us as we close this worship service and song. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor.